Welcome to Unlocking Leadership. I'm Claire Carpenter and I'm your host. So my guest today is Peter Raby. Peter is the chief exec and co-founder of the X4 Group, which is an award-winning international talent partner employing more than 200 people now, isn't it? Your bio says 180, but it's just grown since I last printed it. Yeah, we've done a bit of hiring the last few weeks, yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to have you here this afternoon. Thanks for joining me, first of all. Who are you? How are you? How are you arriving? Yeah, I think it's been a pretty interesting last couple of years, as it has been for a lot of people. But we, like a lot of businesses and a lot of leaders, took that kind of lockdown time to really look at the business and look at what you're doing and think, what do we like what we're doing? Where do we want to get better? And all things people and hiring and retention-wise have been a front and centre thing that you think about during all these things. So the last couple of years has been interesting, but excellent from a business perspective but I'm the the co-founder of X4 Group and we started in 2008 we've grown from three of us to just over 220 people today which has been slower than I would have liked but we've certainly feel like we've got a better plan to make sure that we're going to be maximizing things over the next few years Um, we're based out of London and we've got offices down in Devon um, in New Zealand in Taranga on the North Island as well as New York and we've got a Berlin office that's opening up in April um, as well as a new America office that's planned a little bit further later this year as well so things have been nicely busy and it's certainly been a really really eventful um, and a massive learning journey during the time of the growth we hired our first employee in 2011 so we've been hiring people just over 10 years and whilst we work with some of the Uh, most exciting startups as well as the biggest businesses in both the technology and life sciences space it's been really fascinating to speak to great leaders amongst those businesses and learn what they do best and hopefully try and make your own business better at the same time by doing that learning. So I'm thinking back to 2008. That was a bold move to open a recruitment business in 2008, wasn't it? Yeah, my grandmother was on the phone to me pleading why I was leaving my FTSE 250 business of S3 where we learned our trade and saying, are you aware that Lehman Brothers have just folded? Are you sure this is the right time? Um, <laughs> and to be honest, when you're you know, mid-20s and you feel like you're invincible, that, that was fine. Don't worry, we're pretty talented, we'll be fine. Whereas the reality was, as soon as the legal letters arrived from our old employer saying, don't you dare do what you were doing before, we had to have a bit of a think. And it was a bit of a deep, sharp shock into the reality of what being a business owner was like. So although it was tough and working from home, I found brutally difficult for that first 12 months I really did I don't think my flat's ever been so clean as it was uh, before or after that because it was any excuse not to do anything else but um, it was a great experience and um, and thankfully things have managed to kick on from there we've we've actually never taken on any funding so all that we've done has been uh, has been organic growth up to this point um, so you know that in itself has been a pretty interesting journey. I mean, enormous congratulations on doing that because that is quite an achievement in and of itself. I really think that. What was the driver for you to leave that big business that you were part of? What made you strike out on your own in the first place? Um, the business became a publicly listed business for the first time, uh, maybe nine or 10 months earlier. Um, and I think a lot of people would have said before, but the cultural organisation, when it goes from a privately held business to a publicly listed one, there are natural cost-cutting measures that people want to go through. There's natural the culture had really changed and S3 had been and still was an excellent business. Um, It's just that when we arrived, it was very much a case of how big can we go? How quick can we get there type of approach? And of course, when they went through a listing, things changed somewhat. So we decided that for that main reason, we thought, well, 
we've been pretty decent within this business, although we've only been here for three and a half years. Um, we feel confident that we might be able to give it a, you know, give it a go ourselves and, and have a bit of a vision of what we wanted to achieve with it. And you're starting to reference culture and the impact of perhaps organisational governance and size and things like that on culture. I know culture is something that's really important to you that you're really passionate about. How then, as the starter, as the founder of your organisation, did you go about building a business that has a culture that you think really supports growth? Probably our staff are bored of hearing it, but um, the reality is I think there's been two chapters to the business. When you're a startup and you know sub 50, maybe sub 100 people, I think you've got a, a great sense of enjoyment and excitement about the fact that you're doing something new and maybe a bit risky. And actually, we were definitely hiring in the early days. Myself, going to Mike, that started the business, we'd all been to university. We were all pretty sporty guys and we were pretty competitive guys. And what we simply did, not for any great master plan, but due to the fact that you try and hire people that are like yourself. We were trying to hire people that were cultural fit people. And that worked up to a point. Um, I think it almost led us a bit into a f- maybe a full sense of security. We'd got in the Sunday Times fast track. We'd got in the FD Top 1000 fastest growing in Europe. And so things seemed to be going pretty well. But the reality was there were kind of some warning signs that maybe the culture wasn't actually where we wanted it to be. Um, it had become a, a bit too much of a place of enjoyment. It had become a case where people socialising and having a good time was maybe slightly above the emphasis of where work and the client experience and professionalism should have been and the reality was although it was a great time whilst we were in it we really recognized that "Mm, actually there's a few things here that are getting a bit out of kilter and with meeting other founders you realize now that you at the top of the business really set the tone of the culture if you're the one that's saying oh let's go to the pub on a regular basis guess what people do exactly that whereas if you take yourself seriously and the, the role and the purpose seriously guess what people do exactly the same and a little bit like the old analogy goes um, a small boat is extremely easy to turn the course of within a few seconds. But when you've got a larger vessel, it takes a bit more time. And even when you're only a smallish business of sub 100 people, it's still much, much harder to actually change an ingrained culture uh, when you're that size compared to what it is, um, you know, when you're much, much smaller. And I think the reality was chapter two for us really looked like a, what do we want this business to be? And what are the type of individuals we want? And um, Rather than looking for cultural fits up to that point, we sat down with the with the people we knew were part of the long-term journey and went, no, no, we want cultural contributors as opposed to people that are just like the rest of us because the reality is, as we all know, there's stacks of evidence now to say that uh, a workforce that has differences in it, uh, a workforce that has different backgrounds in it, that's really where you're going to be able to uh, maximize your future potential and have the kind of culture that people want to be a part of as well. So um, it's been, you know, two really quite distinct chapters of um, of where things were good and fun, but actually a realization of where we wanted to be and, uh, and what we had to do to change that culture. Oh, that's so interesting. And I'm sort of having a chicken and egg moment, you know, what comes first, the culture or the people and which shapes what? I wonder if you um, did work to really define what you wanted your culture to be like and then hired around that or if it sort of formed itself emergently? Yeah, certainly not at the beginning. You're just trying to bring revenue in so you can do things like pay your mortgage and all these bits and pieces. The reality is I've been in the industry for 17 years now and it took me way too long to realise that it's the stepping back that is probably as important a lesson as I've ever learned because I'm a high energy person. I love adrenaline. I love go, go, go. But when you're in the mud, in the weeds or whatever phrase you want to put to it, it's extremely hard to recognize where you're at or where you actually want to get to. 
So the stepping away and doing things away from the office and doing things with people um, outside of the norm is so important to establish what you actually want to be doing. Um, and I'd say that's been one of the great developments of the business in the last few years has been the making sure that on a quarterly basis, there's a step away and say, what do we like? What do we not like? And what's misaligned? So it's been a brilliant learning curve along the way. That's really interesting, isn't it? That maybe part of the transition from just the doing and the and the being in a startup to when you really start to scale, that need to, as you say, look up and out rather than down and in. How do you learn how to do that, Pete? There's a, there's a couple of books I was interested to share with you today. I mean, I've finished them in the last month, but they're directly related to kind of culture and all things retention related. Um, the first one, in answer directly to your question, is a great book that I'm reading, only a few chapters in, but it's relevant and good enough in the first couple of chapters to mention it. Um, the book is called uh, Who, Not How. And the reality was, and um, the place where we'd learned our trade was extremely good at saying, we're elite, we're brilliant at what we do, the outside world is a competition, you know, keep them away. We are a, a brilliant, in, you know, almost inward-looking team because there's great expertise around you. And you went, yeah, that's, that's the right way to do it. The only way that you can really have things as you want them to do is by speaking to people that are experts in their field. And that book about who over how is that we're kind of a bit programmed to go, right, I want to achieve something. How am I going to do it? And actually the whole book's premise is to say, if you can think each time of like, who's the person I need to speak to to be able to find out the how, Who's the subject matter expert in the company? Who's the best person outside of the company? It's only when you start uh, really broadening your horizons and broadening your mindset in relation to the importance of networking and finding other industry leaders and non-industry leaders that can talk about the things you want to do. It's amazing in a relatively short conversation, you can have one or two things that you think, crikey, had I not had this conversation, there's no way that I would have ended up at an answer that was any good. So it's by speaking to people that have been there, seen it and done it in the industry, but crucially as well, outside of the industry to try and give you some much needed guidance. Yeah. So back to that diversity piece almost, aren't we, around not just staying within your own knowledge sector or your own industry sector, but actually learning from things that are parallel, different, but relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's, uh, I even now with my assistant make sure that on a quarterly basis, there are people inside and outside the industry, there's a constant quarter full of lunches and breakfasts that I go out the door and make sure that every other week I'm meeting someone different because Lo and behold, every single time you do, you have a different interesting or an insight in relation to something else or a new connection that you're introduced to. And by that diverse approach of the people that you meet, that's really, really how you can get to, to finding the best solutions. I love that. In your sector, you're obviously working to build and scale your own your own organisation. You're seeing that in the businesses that you're partnering with to help them do the same, aren't you? Yeah, that's exactly it. And um I think recruitment is a pretty bad press a lot of the time, which some of it is absolutely granted. There's sadly a, a lot of pretty shoddy um, examples of it going out there. But when recruitment's done well, you are a proper consulting partner with the clients that you work with. And I think the reality is because although we work with some very large companies, we work with an awful lot of high growth businesses as well. And that's why it's a great thing doing our new podcast that we've done in the last 12 months. Um, it's great speaking to founders and CEOs that are going through very similar journeys to you. When you can swap notes and talk about the good bits, the bad bits, and really harbor almost a bit of a network of learning from each other, I think that is the sweet spot that we didn't have pre-pandemic and kind of why we started the podcast as we did. Um, there seems to be a much better uh, 
you know, almost humane approach to leadership compared to what it was like before, a bit of a competition type of mindset, whereas now everyone's open to learning together because ultimately when you do that, hopefully everyone can be their very best selves. Yeah, I think there must have been really significant changes about how you work to both attract and retain people. What have you seen change over that period, would you say, in terms of perhaps either working on your attrition or thinking about how you really retain and attract really good people? Yeah, I could probably talk for about an hour and a half, Claire, about all all, all those topics, that's for sure, because it's, it's one of those really fascinating areas that I care enormously about. We hired our first people and culture director uh, back in January of this year. Again, we specifically picked someone that was from outside of the recruitment sector, but had been involved in a high growth business to make sure that we were kind of hopefully getting the best of both worlds. But Donna's been really great because you can choose to do one of two things. We've done things and been been an okay business up to this point. But if you say, well, we're going to invest a lot of money in a team and a function, you want to make sure that you're listening to the advice that comes in the door. So that's been a brilliant hire, but also... She's already brought so much to the table, ways of doing things that you simply wouldn't have, have done before. Now, there's no way that when we we're 100 people big, we would have had a director of people and culture. You're not in a cash position really to be able to spend that kind of thing. But that's probably one of the other big, big things that uh, had I gone back and done it all again, I'd have been much more structured in relation to making sure that even if it's not a full-time hire, you were working with outside consultants and outside specialists to stand back on a semi-regular basis every six months, every year to go, How are we doing this part of our business? What do we like? What do we not like? And where do we actually want to be with it? Because it's only the stepping back and taking the time to do that. Um, And I know that I offered way too many excuses of being too busy for too many years. But actually, by being too busy and not actually tackling a problem head on, you're actually only going to see that either culturally or retention wise, your numbers are going to drop and drop and drop. And of course, in a sector like recruitment, which, um, you know, people leave university typically, they go into a recruitment role that they've never, ever done before. Understandably, with those conditions, the retention rate in the sector is about 40 to 45%. Now, um, it's been great that we've been able to be above the industry average. We're sat at a 65% retention rate today, but we're certainly not happy there. We all want to improve and improve and improve. And we actually make sure as part of our monthly board meetings, we do just that. Our people, our strategies, are we happy with where they need to be? Some of the things that we know that are so crucial now are the communication around the purpose of the business, of what we're actually here to do, because human beings want to be part of something bigger than what they are and what their job is. So that's how do we communicate that? There's a brilliant piece of the book. I'd really encourage um, people to listen to Daniel Coyle's Culture Code as well. Um, There's a couple of outstanding examples in that, one of which is about the impact of negative people in the business, which maybe we can talk about after um, after what we're discussing now. But the other piece is the evidence that suggests of how vitally important the first 48 hours of an employee's onboarding experience is. Um, It really is one of those things that unless you look at it continually, almost every new batch of people that you bring in, um, you've got to be thinking, who are we making sure that we're challenging to get this uh, to get this process and onboarding as good as it possibly can be? Um, we used to do a, a bit of a meet the CEO discussion because sadly, one of the things was getting to that size now and uh, as part of our empowering people to succeed ethos is that I had to give up the final interview <laughs> 18 months ago when I became CEO, which was really upsetting to me because I adore speaking to people and I adore hearing what they need and hearing where that fire comes from. Um, but the reality was we, we felt it was important that they heard from me, even though I wasn't involved in the hiring that within that first couple of days they have a conversation with me ideally in the flesh but also on video for our other offices as well where i say what we're here for what we're trying to do in a kind of culture and i um, and so far 
the feedback we've had in relation to that, some kind of outside of me feedback from the people team, they say that that's really important because it really helps to contextualize the journey they're going to be going through. And then, of course, that other big piece in relation to when you've got people in the door and hopefully done the onboarding well is, of course, that all important retention piece. And that is almost twofold. We've got almost half of our business, about 45% of our business haven't been with us for more than 12 months. So it's an extremely uh, brand new to the workforce um, group of people. And there's two things that really spring out to me when you talk about retention. It's, of course, well, maybe three things. One, how well are you actually developing your, your people when they get on board? How well are they supported? How many voices do they hear? How do you make sure you adopt all the different type of learners that you have out there from visual learners to, to everything in between. Um, so the development of how you do that is, of course, absolutely vital. The second thing is how you actually get the feedback from the people that have started within your business. What are your touch points? When are the crucial times they get sat down with someone from the people team and get asked all manner of questions in relation to their experience? And then crucially, what you do with that, with those learns and how you impact those into the business is, is that crucial process that that information can easily get lost. And then that final piece, which we're doing so much with at the moment, and we've got such a long way to go before we have got it exactly how we want it, but is your leaders. How well do they lead new people? How well do they support them? And crucially, how aware are they in relation to their own strengths as a leader? And then that all-important follow-up point in relation to how well you develop your leaders, because that was definitely an area that if you happen to be naturally good, it's very easy to let someone crack on, as the phrase goes. But the reality is um, having a really uh, individually tailored uh, leadership development program um, is, is, is something that we've been working very hard to make better, because I think all of those are very, very important factors of how you make sure that your culture is good, but therefore your, your retention will follow. I think that's really fascinating. I'd like to draw on a couple of those points a little bit deeper, if that's okay with you. I'm thinking in particular about the importance of the first 48 hours. I used to always say I wanted people to go home after their first day of working with me and say, I'm so glad I've joined that business. I've had the best day. I wonder if there are people now listening to this podcast who are thinking, hmm, perhaps putting somebody in front of the user manual for, for six hours by themselves or putting them on some online learning in their first day is not necessarily going to deliver. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point because each individual is wired differently in relation to how they like to do things. And I think the reality is we've tried to make sure there's as much variety in that first 48 hours too, just as almost a bit of a glimpse in relation to this is the way that you're going to go about your journey with us. There's, of course, a big warm welcome from the uh, from the L&D and the, and the people team. There's a get to know each other session. There's a, a tour around the building. We try and make sure there's as much variety within it as possible. One, so people get a bit of a sense to meet as many people as they can, but also they kind of get instantly, hopefully a bit of a sense of uh, community with the other people that they're doing onboarding with. Because um, however much you say, oh, we've got an open door policy or, yeah, we've got an, a really great friendly culture and, you know, these are the things that we that we do well. The reality is they're going through that shared experience with those people in that group with them. And we never hire less than five people at any one time. And often it might be larger groups than that. And that is very specifically down to the fact that we know that isolated people are often unhappy people and happy people are leaving people. And what we want to do from day one is create a culture of trust 
and create a culture of belonging. And therefore, we have multiple different ways from the coffee room to walk around the local area from some of the most senior staff in the business, um, as well as some actual official learning and some actual learning and development that gets done on that day too, and a bit of a challenge and a bit of a taking out the comfort zone, but done in the right way and, and done in a bit of a varied approach. And we, after each batch of people, step back and go, how could that be done better? Um, and, and that will continue. And I think that's probably the most important thing so you can get it as good as you possibly can do. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really important. You said that about half your workforce has actually been with you for less than 12 months. That's phenomenal. I'm thinking back to the 12 months that have passed and therefore most of those people will have joined you remotely then. No, we. Um, this is one of the other big things as well. So we've said throughout graduate related businesses has probably been one of the least spoken about sectors in the last couple of years because For anyone that's got a nice house or a nice flat, anyone that's got a setup at home with a nice study, anyone that's got a nice room that they can work peacefully from, I think think they forget what life is like as a graduate, as a 21-year-old. And you might be one of those people that's gone to live with mum and dad again, and you're probably in in a different camp. But for those people like myself, finished university, got into an absolutely horrible flat where we had, you know, it was a bedroom and a bed. It was a sofa and a TV, an horrible kitchen, horrible bathroom. And a couple of flatmates that would have been furloughed and they might have been getting drunk every day. And like that is not a place where you can learn and begin a role remotely. How on earth is that a condition to do that? So one of the things that we were pretty fearful of, Claire, when things started was the fact that we just moved into a brand spanking, very big new office the week before lockdown. So it felt like a, oh my goodness, this is going to be a financial monstrosity when we began it. But the reality was it was pretty a pretty awesome fluke because what it meant was that we could have massive social distancing for those that weren't at mum and dad's or didn't have a home set up that suited them. And we said to all of them, the government guidelines, of course, are you must work at home if you can. But if you can't, if you haven't got a desk, you can't sit on your bed and be an effective worker. You can't learn properly. So we've got a massive new office. We can have three meter distancing and we've got a load of safety measures in places we did, but we'll have people in throughout. And actually the people that needed to be in were in. And over the last year, thankfully, I think there's been fairly minimal lockdowns. So actually, um, we've, now we've done all of our onboarding face-to-face in the office, Claire. Um, but for anyone that wasn't comfortable with that, we said, no problem. If you'd prefer to wait by a month, two, three, six months, for everything to settle down, you've got full ability to do so. You don't need to start with us now. We've selected you because we think you're a great human being and great potential. Join us when you're ready. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that, you know, four of you in a flat all trying to share some sort of wonky internet is just, it's so tricky, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It really has been. And so you also said that you're doing really regular touch points to check in with how people are feeling, what's going on for them, how they're enjoying what they're doing. And then you said it's really important that we do something with that data. I have a really strong opinion. I think it's worse to ask and do nothing than than not ask, actually. Totally, um, totally. So how do you listen to feedback from your people and act on it? Yeah, I think this is one of the things that evolved really nicely. And Donna, our new people and culture director, has had a great impact on this as well. And I think the the most important point before we get to the, almost the detail of how we do it is the fact that we hold a, a quarterly Zoom to make sure that all the offices get the same experience called a future forum. And what that involves is everything non-recruitment related, everything X forum culture and, uh, and, and CSR and charity related and all the things that are non about the actual recruitment piece. Um, and in those sessions, each quarter, we relay the feedback that we had in the previous quarter. We relay the conversations that have happened, the roundtables that have happened, this is what you've said. 
this is what we've done against it. And these are the things that we're still working on to make sure we get better. Because as you absolutely say, without an open dialogue or some kind of means of communication, don't even bother asking a question because people get even more disheartened. And we have a little monthly newsletter that goes out just in relation to little and often updates because once a quarter, it can easily last an hour and a half if we're not careful. And of course, that's probably a bit too long for an update in relation to all these things. But we make sure Claire, that we have different people within the leadership team throughout the business some of them brand new leaders and myself every single quarter will sit down with a different group of people to chew the fat in relation to how was your onboarding? What have you liked about the first week? What has been awful? What what are little things that you've noticed that we could just do that little bit better? Because a little bit like Sir Dave Brailsford talks about with his marginal gain theory, um, the big philosophy that I try and get across in the first 48 hours of conversation with them is that I don't care how new you are or me and my role, if all of us have got a deep-rooted hunger to learn and to get better, that's all you can ever really do. And you can do your best with that and hopefully make sure it's communicated. So we make sure that there's lots of leaders with lots of different touch points within the business and all of that information that gets gathered gets shared on a monthly executive board meeting for the most senior uh, people within the business, but then on those quarterly basis and, and with a monthly newsletter gets communicated back of what we're actually doing about it too. I love that. I'm, so I'm feeling really energised at the future of the leaders in your business because it really sounds like they're being invested in and that there's some development in place for them as well. And you mentioned that being another sort of pillar of the way that you're building that business and you're scaling it. So you mentioned that you've put in place a really robust leadership development programme and thinking about how often in the sector people are promoted to manager or team leader or whatever the role title is on the basis of their performance in their own role, not necessarily their leadership or or management development skills. What's your view on that? And how do you then pick out the best people to really grow and nurture as leaders in your business? Yeah, Claire, it's a it's a it's a great question to be asking about because um, recruitment, I'm sure other sales related businesses are going to is going to have this to the fore. I think the greatest example that we've tried to talk about a lot within the business in its development in chapter two is um, is the fact that some of the best, let's use sport as an example, uh, some of the best leaders within the sporting world, they have not been top players. They're people that have been maybe competent, maybe you're right, maybe not even that, but they're outstanding leaders and therefore you're absolutely right. Again, early days, chapter one. We probably did the thing that a lot of businesses do and go, wow, if you're great at recruitment, then in you go, you're going to be a great leader. And it was probably a bit unfair on them. We really saw that some people absolutely struggled because although on our MDP, which is our management development program, on day one, we try and do some expectation management. You might have got really competent at the recruitment role and you might have been captain of your football team or you might have done some leadership before. But when it comes to business-related leadership, You've got to act like you're a brand new trainee with a deep root desire to to learn and get better because this is a completely separate set of skills. And as we've seen, actually, there are definitely some people that have been excellent recruiters and have, have gone on to be excellent leaders. And I think we were maybe slightly blindsided, Glenn, Mike and I, when we started the business because we happen to have been fortunate of being pretty decent recruiters and maybe able to grow successful teams. So we kind of maybe took that as a bit of a given that, oh, if you're a decent recruiter, you'll probably be a, a fine leader. Whereas the reality of it, as you know, is that one does not mean the other. And what we're doing, and this is going to be something that we're going to evolve massively this year, we've got certain values that drive our business. We call them the four eyes. It's innovate, improve, inspire, and include. And actually, we want a leadership recognition um, panel. Uh, we want set up. 
to highlight the people that may not produce the greatest numbers continually, but they continually show the core values that we recognize that are going to be vital in leaders. And thankfully now, Claire, only in the last few years, really, have we been able to have people that have come through um, that haven't been outstanding recruiters, but wow, look how great they are with people. And you and I both know um, anyone that's got a high EQ, someone that can deal with people, there's going to be a role for them that they could that they could absolutely excel at. And we've had some really successful transitions within the business from people that have been recruiters, that have gone into compliance, that have gone into operations, that have gone into L&D and, and have gone into uh, EDNI and our people team as well. And I guess it's having a, a culture where you make sure that you're recognizing the great things that people do, even if it isn't the core numbers, and that those people still get opportunities for leadership and progression. And even if those core numbers that you get judged by as a trainee recruiter and recruiter um, aren't uh, at, at the very top of the leaderboard. Yeah, because the actual impact of them over a broader sphere of control is much bigger than their own influence, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I'm thinking about, you just referenced EI and EQ, thinking about encouraging our leaders in whatever business sector we're in to keep growing their EQ and thinking in particular about self-awareness. Sometimes as a leader, it can be quite confronting, can't it, to look in the mirror and see what our impact really is and take on feedback. What have been your learns in that space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, first things first, I really believe that you can't ask others to do what you're unwilling to do yourself. I've only been CEO of the business for the last 18 months. Again, that was a lockdown-related conversation that we said, right, chaps, we kind of recognize that we probably need to be our best selves to be able to make sure that we can't not only survive this, but thrive off the back of it. So what are we going to do? And all of us agreeing our best suited roles was one of the things that we did. And I was growing incredibly frustrated and irritated with myself at the fact that I knew I wasn't very good at the job, quite honestly. Like I might have some okay natural strengths and bits and pieces, but I'm like, wow, I'm off the pace here compared to what I want to be as a chief exec. Um, and I started working with a coach for the first time, an executive coach for the first time a year ago, Dr. John Blakey, who's been absolutely terrific in just helping frame and helping contextualize the journey that you're on and really just uh, you know, using some methodologies that, that, that will enable your development to be done right. And part of that early doors was getting 360 feedback. And getting 360 feedback from the six people that work with me closest and nearest and dearest every single day, including my assistant at the time. So really, you know, and it being, and I said, I, I don't need names to it. I'm happy with it being completely anonymized, but, you know, you, you choose what you see best because I want people to be absolutely honest with us. And, uh, and by doing that, communicating with the learns and communicating what I was actually going to go through as a development journey, one is because I want to be the best version of myself, but hopefully it sets a bit of a tone as to, well, Pete's doing it. He's not telling us that we should do it. He's not going through it himself. Hopefully it gets them really impassioned about the the way that they want to go through the development. And I really think there's a number of different methodologies that, again, Donna's brought a good few in. We were doing a couple ourselves beforehand, but 360 feedback is one of them, of making sure that we've got a program that all of our leaders get and receive and have as part of their personal development plans, the feedback that they're getting. But it's also things like skills analysis and skills reviews. Lots of them are online and free now, but you can do an excellent team and board level skills analysis of where you're actually best and actually where you may where you may have some weaknesses that you want to grow on. And it's like all these things, as long as you have multiple touch points in relation to how you're going about your own development and you get more and more people's voices and here's all the ways that we've got, it might be that from a, a certain job title within a business, you get to have an, an outside coach. It might be that you've got 
loads of things that you do internally and then it might be some external things and I, I really think again from talking to people that know what they're talking about and talking to people outside of your industry and outside of your business you can really get to a position of your leadership development being done in a great way from yourself all the way down to the newest leader within the business and again it can't just be a catchphrase it's got to be something that you show and you do repeatedly and show that those values are a really important part of what you are as a business and organization. So I'm thinking about bringing our conversation full circle. We started by talking about how important the culture of an organisation is and thinking about, I love your phrase, cultural contributors. And then we've moved through this wonderful area of investment in people, thinking about people's circumstances, building in really robust measures, thinking about the way that you onboard and the way that you train your leadership people. As we draw our conversation to a close, what would you say to organisations who are struggling to retain their best people? What advice would you give them from what you've learned in your story so far? I think it's about the stepping back is the first step of anything. There are, as I mentioned, probably four or five crucial things in relation to what the purpose of the business is and how that's communicated. Um, your first contact analysis and the first phone call or email that they get to their interview, how much of a two-way street does it feel? Um, what is that first 48 hours onboarding feel like for, for people going through it? How you get feedback from your business, how you give your leaders awareness and leaders development training. Um, and I'd probably say that there's a lot of crucial factors, but they're going to be some of the most important ones to step back and go, what do we like? What do we not like? And how maybe could we do things better? And then crucially, Claire, as I mentioned, what outside help by a non-exec director, by an external coach or whatever it may be, do we need to assist us to do this better? You know, we've been an organically grown business and that's great and very exciting because it means that people can see it as great opportunities. If you've only got the X4 or whatever way of doing things, you might be a bit limited in relation to the kind of outcomes that you could get. So using those external people to help with the biggest and most important questions will be excellent first steps. Yeah. And we've spent our conversation so far really thinking back to what you've learned so far and where you are now. Um, my last question then is going to be, what's next for you and X4? Where's it going now? Yeah, we've got a we've got an aim to be um, a, a, a really internationally established talent partner by 2024. So we're, uh, as I mentioned, north of kind of 200 heads now. We're hoping to be between 360 and 400 heads by um, yeah by 2024, which should be exciting and, and really take the business to a new level. Um, we've got new offices opening up in Berlin um, in April and another office outside of New York in Central America later this year, early next year. So um, yeah, more expansion and considered expansion, which is an important phrase to add in there, um, <laughs> and, and really trying to make sure that we can yeah, we can go about being a brilliant talent partner and consultancy for the businesses that we work with. Yeah, I wish you enormous success with that. Can't wait to see where it takes you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Claire. It was really nice talking to you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Unlocking Leadership, you can subscribe through all the regular podcast channels. And please do leave us a rating and review there. We'd also love you to share any episodes you've found interesting on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever, so that others can join the conversation and share their experiences. This podcast was made in association with Corndell. It was produced and edited by Nick Hilton for Podo.